I've been talking about 12 ways giving biblically can become your key to financial prosperity. Is there anybody in the house that would like to experience financial prosperity? Okay, that's some of you, but what about the rest of you? Anybody? Raise your hands in both feet if you can, since you're seated. Yeah, that's me, Pastor. Amen. I spoke from this a couple of Sundays ago. The Bible actually has a lot to say about money. There are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that refer to money. Most of these verses are about how money should be obtained or how it should be used. Money obtained in the right way can be a huge blessing to us. It enables us to do more for our families. With adequate funding, we can bless the kingdom of God, support missionaries like David and the people of Uganda. We can help alleviate the suffering in our world like we did after Hurricane Harvey came through and we're still doing to this very day. But if money is obtained in an unrighteous manner, listen to this, it becomes a curse to the one who has it. Did you hear that? The Bible is not just concerned about how you obtain money. It's concerned that money should be used correctly as well. You see, money is not inherently evil. This stuff right here, this is not inherently evil. I use a money clip. This, this has no built-in ugliness or nastiness in it. I hear Christians say, money is the root of all evil. Well, in that case, give me all of it and you won't have to worry about any evil. And I'll put it in the work of God. Amen. Money is not the root of evil. The love of money is what the Bible says is the root of all evil. It's a big difference. Money itself has nothing wrong with it. Used for the wrong purposes, though, it can tempt us to make decisions that feed the wrong appetites in us. And that's usually what people are referring to. It can cause us to destroy our own lives. You see, a lot of people live in a place spiritually where they don't control their bad appetites. Their bad appetites are controlled by their lack of opportunity to indulge in them. Big difference. So they get a lot of money, and all of a sudden they can now do things they never could afford before because they have nothing inside to resist the enemy. They haven't got enough of the word that they understand that morally this is wrong. Or if they understand it, the strength to say no. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs said this. This is one of the most important statements I've ever read. The single most important distinction in life is to distinguish between an opportunity to be seized and a temptation to be resisted. You see, some people... Look at a temptation and say that's an opportunity. It's wrong. When you have the Heavenly Father's favor, and I'm teaching this series on Father Knows Best, but right now we're focusing on finances. When you have the Heavenly Father's favor, money will begin to love you. It's a big difference. But if you don't have the Heavenly Father's favor, you will love money. Whoa. So what's the difference? You loving money? Are money loving you? There's a huge difference in the two. You see, there's not a person in here that hasn't had money problems. Money can cause stress in your life. 
or more accurately, the absence of it <laughs> can cause stress. Anybody in the building ever had stress related to issues over finances? Come on, be honest. You sitting there looking all pious, liar, liar, pants on fire. You know good and well that when you have money problems, you and the wife have problems. Come on, help me out. You have emotional problems. You got all kinds of problems. Boudreaux walked into a bar. He said, give me a drink before the problems start. So he drinks a drink and then he orders another saying, give me another one of them drinks before the problems start, Shaq. So the bartender is looking bewildered and this goes on for a while. And after the sixth drink, the bartender is totally confused and he asks Boudreaux, when are you going to pay for these drinks? And Boudreaux answered, now the problems start. Amen. (laughs) You see, it's real easy to buy stuff. It's the paying for it that becomes a problem. Suppose there was a way to avoid the problems that so many people have over money. Believe it or not, the scripture actually teaches us we can. Last week, I talked about how often the wisdom of God is in contradiction with our own thinking and the wisdom of men. And we are prone to want to trust our thoughts. Listen to what God has to say about this. Isaiah 55, verse 8 through 9. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Whoa, that's heavy duty. God's ways and thoughts are much higher and of a much higher order than are our own to the degree that it's not unlike, if you saw this, whenever Elon Musk sent that recent, that, that space rocket out into outer space, he had... On the outside of that, that there was a Tesla sports car. And they sent back these photos that they took. And this is what it looks like. There's the earth in the background. There's the Tesla sports car and a mannequin dressed up in a space suit. Now, the earth right there looks a whole lot different than it does out the window of your car, doesn't it? Hello, help me out here. Looking out the window of that Tesla, I get a different perspective than when I look out the window of my car. Look at the next one. And that rocket hasn't stopped. It's still speeding away from Earth. And the higher or the more distant it gets from Earth, I want you to understand something. The more the perspective is going to change. And you know why that's the case? One word. It's called elevation. The more you get elevated, the more your perspective changes. Looking at life from the window of that Tesla is going to be different than it is looking at life from the window of your car. You see, people get all bogged down in the problems that ground them. Ground them. You ever hear anybody say, I'm sinking, Pastor? Sinking. You know what they mean? I've lost my perspective and I'm getting drugged down. And do you know that's why some people get angry over things that don't matter? They've lost their perspective. Why are you getting all mad about something simple like somebody cut you off in traffic? Oh, I'm preaching right now. They made you three seconds late 
three seconds, three whole seconds. And you're going to waste that much time sitting in your car when you get to wherever you're going. And more. Why do others become depressed and even suicidal? They've lost perspective. Why do they steal? They've lost perspective. Why do they have affairs and blow up their marriages and hurt their children? They've lost perspective. That's also why some people do not tithe. I'm teaching on finances and you need to understand. The reason some people don't tithe is they're looking out the window of their car from ground level. But if you get up there where God is at, you'll understand finances from an altogether different perspective. Guys, check that thermometer. I I think I see some ladies that are, yeah, yeah, I heard some amens. Whoever thinks that that thermometer is an accelerator, it doesn't cool faster because you slip over there and turn it down. You're not supposed to touch that unless you're an usher. Amen. To succeed in life, you have to gain the right perspective and look at things correctly. And the flesh has a hard time doing that. And this is literally true with every single thing that God asks us to do. Amen. For example, God says, don't be unfaithful in your marriage. And you know, if you have an earthbound perspective, you know what you're going to say? God's trying to keep me from enjoying pleasure. An affair may look like pleasure, but after you blow up your marriage, destroy your kids, and have lost your own integrity... You're going to understand why God said be faithful in your marriage. Amen. You cannot succeed in life without developing the proper perspective. Amen. You ever hear anybody talk like this? Well, I think. (laughs) My opinion. I want to tell you something. I learned a long time ago not to trust our human opinions. God's perspective is always best. And here's the challenge. Right now, the enemy rules in the spirit realm, or what the Bible calls the heavenly places. He's called the prince and the power of the air, right? Ephesians 3.10. You need to see this. The enemy does not want you to look out the window of the Tesla. He wants you to stay earthbound, sinking, with a perspective that is informed by this fallen world. But Ephesians 3.10 says, To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. You see, our calling is to inform the enemy who is occupying the spiritual dimension called the heavenlies That the lies he's telling us have been found out. We caught him. So where does God want to make this wisdom known? Look at the verse. In the heavenly places. God wants to elevate you to see his perspective. Because before you can inform the powers in heavenly places. What the truth is. You've got to see it yourself. Woo. Amen. That means that part of this whole process of becoming a child of God, it's real easy to get born again, but the discipleship part is huge. Amen. 
Because part of that, Romans 12, 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by, everybody say, changing the way you think. How do you get transformed? Change the way you think. What is it our flesh doesn't want to let go of? The way we think. Mm. We trust our thoughts when we shouldn't. And God said, then, everybody say, then. That means what follows was predicated upon the instruction given before being complied with. You will learn to know God's will for you. And what is God's will? Good, pleasing, and perfect. Remember those plans I talked to you about a while ago that God has specific plans for you? But it also refers to the principles of life. If your life is not pleasing, good, and perfect, it might be because you're not adhering to the plans the Father has for you. And just little, you know, spoiler alert here. Don't listen to the enemy and think the principles of this world work. Don't. They don't work. Everybody say, oh, we're more educated. We're more enlightened. This is an enlightened generation, an enlightened age. If we do it this way, and we're going to create a utopia. Really? Let's see if it's working. According to Oxfam, the Oxford Committee for Famine Relief, the number of people whose wealth is equal to the total of the poorest half of the world's population since 2010. You got that? The number of people that their combined wealth is equal to the wealth of the poorest half of the 3.6 billion people on the planet. 2010, 388 people. Their wealth equaled the wealth of the poorest half of the world. Oh, well, no doubt, since we're so enlightened and educated, that's getting better, right? 2011, 177 people, their combined wealth equaled that of the lower half of the world's population. 2012, 159 people. 2013, 92. 2014, 80. 2015, 62. And 2016, the last year they've compiled figures at this point, the total number of people whose wealth equaled the lower half of the world's population is eight. Yeah, it's working. (laughs) We're becoming very enlightened. It's working great, just not for us. (laughs) It's working real good for eight people. The Bill Gates and the Warren Buffetts and everybody else, the Carlos Slims, and yeah, working really good for them, the Jeff Bezos and all of those guys. Working fantastic. You follow the wisdom of the world, it works for those at the top, not for you. But listen to this. When you follow God's principles, they work for you. I wish I could hear an amen. And this is even why God saved us. Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then what did he do? He raised us up together. And what? made us to sit in the Tesla in heavenly places 
in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Somebody say, I serve a rich God. Would you do that? He wants to elevate you to heavenly places and change your perspective. That you can begin to live your life by the principles of his kingdom. And look what happens when the word changes our thinking. Oh my God. David, you took too long. Donnie, you robbed me of my time. I'm looking at somebody shoot that clock up there on the wall. Would you do that? Isaiah 55, 10 through 13. The rain and snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground. The water of the earth. They cause the grain to grow. Producing seed for the former and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out. Say this with me. It always produces fruit. Say it again. Always. It will accomplish all I want it to. And it will prosper everywhere I send it. When you get God's word in your heart, it always does what God said it will do. You say, but it works for somebody else, but not for me. It always works. I need somebody to say always. always. The devil's saying it had worked for you. Just be careful and don't turn and look at anybody. They'll think you're thinking they're the devil. But just say always. always. It always works. Here's the problem. You see that rain outside? It's soaking into the ground. And you know what's going to happen? In the spring, there's going to be plants coming up. We want it right now. Microwave society. God said, my word is like the rain. You got to get a good soaking first. You got to get it in your heart. Hello, somebody. I want to say it again. You can never get too much of the word of God. You can get too little, but you never can get too much. This word is literally a prophecy, a word picture. Of what God said he will do. Because he then goes on to say. You will live in joy and peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song. The trees of the field will clap their hands. And where once there were thorns. Cypress trees will grow. Where nettles grew. Myrtles will sprout up. These events will bring great honor to the Lord. They will bring what? Great honor to the Lord's name. They will be an everlasting sign of his power and love. The reason God wants to bless you is he gets glory out of it. Amen. So he gives us his word and it contains the principles that can transform our lives. But if we listen to our own thoughts, we're back to looking out the window of our car while we drive down the highway. And all we see are fence posts. And God wants to elevate your thinking. He thinks differently than we do. And last week I taught on three of the basic principles of giving. The principle of giving yourself to God first. The principle of giving God first fruits. And then the principle of giving to God sacrificially. Let me introduce principle number four. Give God your best. Malachi 1, 7 through 14, God complains. You can read it. I don't have time to go through all of this. They offered defiled food on the altar. They offered the blind as a sacrifice. And God said in verse 8, is it not evil? Evil. Verse 9, he says, you should entreat God's favor that it will be gracious to us. 
But he said, while this is, you're doing this, can God possibly accept you favorably? You're giving God less than your best. He said, which one of you would even shut the doors in the house of God without getting a salary or kindle a fire on the altar? God says, I have no pleasure in you, nor will I accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles and every place incense shall be offered and a pure offering. What is a pure offering? For my name will be great among the nations. But God said, you profane it. And say the table of the Lord is defiled. You're saying the table of the Lord is defiled. How are they saying that? They're saying it by what they put on it. And God said. You say. Oh what a weariness. Tired again. We went to church. Pastor preached on giving again. I'm so tired of that. Yeah there you are. Right there in the book of Malachi. Right there. That verse has got your name on it. Right there. Amen. You, you, did you know you were in the Bible? Somebody says, God doesn't know who I am. Oh, yes, he does. He put you in the Bible. It's right there. What a weariness. And you sneer at it saying, the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. And that's my offering. God said, should I accept this? He said, curse be the deceiver who has in his flock a proper male to offer but you sacrifice to the Lord what is blemished. Let me summarize this quickly. Your faithfulness or lack of faithfulness in giving to God establishes who you are in God's eyes. Their offering told God who they were. Their offering revealed what was in their heart, but more importantly, it also told God who they were not. Number two, The offering they gave spoke of the value they had placed on God. When you offer something sickly and broken and cheap to God, God said, you've defiled my altar. You have not shown me glory. Let me say it like this. Would you walk into the dealership, Cadillac dealership, and say, I want that brand new Cadillac with all the options, and here's $250 that I'm going to use to pay for it. They would laugh you out of the building. Because what you've just done is shown you do not value that product. People will laugh at you. When you offer less than your best to God, what you're really doing is demeaning the Lord. You say, but it doesn't work that way because you can't buy a relationship with God. I realize you can't. God is not impressed by monetary things and earthly things. I agree with that too. But notice who it was who is complaining. It is the Lord who said that I'm not impressed. That was God's assessment, not the prophet's. So we can all say God's not impressed with monetary things and you can't buy a relationship. But right here it says this, that God is the one that is making the complaint. Mm. If you want God's favor in your life, why would you give God less than your best? Let's go all in this year and put God first and watch what he will do in our lives. Somebody shout amen. Principle number five, give obediently and faithfully. And in 1 Samuel 15, and I don't have the time to read this, Samuel goes and finds Saul 
And Saul did not obey the voice of the Lord to kill all the Amalekites and all of their belongings. And so Samuel tells Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and in sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Because Saul's explanation when Samuel walked up and said, Saul, I sent you to kill all the Amalekites. That was the word of the Lord and even killed their livestock. What is this blading of the sheep and loin of the cattle I hear? And Saul said, well, we would just, we will offer a sacrifice. And God said, wait a minute. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Faithfulness. Amen. Amen. There's a dimension beyond sacrifice. I'll say it like this. Because many times as believers, some of us start to give. We become inspired in a series like this. And six weeks later, because we haven't got a harvest and been promoted to be vice president of the company yet. Hello, you know what I mean. We're a microwave society. We want it right now. Amen. You go to Papacitos. Do you know? We have anybody here that works in Papacitos. Can I see your hand? Anybody in the, in the building? We've had a number of our people through the years that do, particularly those in university. You have 45, they have 45 seconds from the time you sit at your table when they better be standing there offering you salsa and chips and water. 45 seconds. They time those guys. You know why? Because they want, they understand something. They, they know that people are impressed by good customer service. And in 45 seconds, you better have some salsa. And some of you going to Papacitos this afternoon. I need to call them and tell them to give an offering to our building program because I gave them some free props in the service this morning. Amen. Amen. We want it right now. They understand that about human nature. But listen to this. Like I said, part-time obedience is full-time disobedience. You get started, and then you don't get a harvest right away, and you start sliding back. Part-time obedience is full-time disobedience. God said the rain has to soak into the ground, but my word will accomplish what I sent it to do. It always, everybody say always. Put your hand over your heart and say, I will always prosper when I honor the word of God. You know how people get by with disobedience in their own lives? They deceive themselves. They say, well, tithing wasn't even New Testament. That's under the law. The last two weeks ago, I showed you where it it began thousands of years before the law, so they don't even know what they're talking about. I also showed you several places in the uh, New Testament that refer to it as well. Even Jesus spoke about it, as as did the Apostle Paul. But they say, tithing, that's Old Testament law. Okay, let's just forget the argument, Okay. Does it even matter? Because here's the deal. The truth is, is that if a New Testament Christian living under grace gives less to the work of God than a Jew in the Old Testament living under law, that is not grace. It is a disgrace. I need a better amen. We're under grace. We don't have, you kidding? Under law, they gave? And we who have the benefits of grace now think, well, I don't have to do that. My God, that's the whole problem. It's a hard issue, isn't it? You see, your obedience or lack thereof can affect the degree of favor and blessing that you receive from the Lord. 
And whether you're blessed or not is often determined by your obedience or disobedience. Isaiah 119, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. So that brings me to principle number six, give willingly. Everybody say willingly. Let me wrap this up quickly. Exodus 36, five through seven, Moses went because it was reported to him that when they were building the tabernacle, that the people had given so much that there was more than enough to complete it. And in verse six, Moses gave the command and the message was sent throughout the camp. Men and women, don't prepare any more gifts for the sanctuary. We have enough. So the people stopped bringing their sacred offerings. Now I'm gonna just tell you right now, you'll probably never hear me make a statement like that. I'm just being real with you. Can I be real? You know why you won't? Because 4% of the church today ties nationwide. That's why I can't make a statement like that. Missions would be shut down. Church would go, churches would go into bankruptcy. We wouldn't have any, wouldn't be able to do any of the programs that we do. You see, their contributions were more than enough to complete the project. You know how this got started? It's when in Exodus 35, four through five, Moses told them this is the thing which the Lord commanded. Didn't suggest, he commanded. Saying that they should take an offering to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart. Everybody say, I've got to be of a willing heart. And let him bring it to the Lord. The children of Israel responded so positively that Moses finally had said, whoa, time out, everybody, that's enough. Now, this is the mystery for me. Did you ever wonder how a stiff-necked, rebellious generation like that could give so generously that the pastor would have to stay? That's enough, folk. We don't need any more offerings. Does that sound like that's almost a contradiction of what you would expect them to do? It is. Why is it that a people always grumbling, I'm sick and tired of this manna on the ground, water. If we at least had stayed in Egypt, we'd have garlics and leek. Yeah, your breath smelled like it too. And You know, I just always complaining. Who gave you the authority, Moses? They complained about everything. But the one thing they never complained about was giving. You ever see that in the Bible? They gave so much, Moses had to tell them to stop. Why? I'll tell you why. Because the night they were delivered, they each family gave a sacrificial offering. And that sacrifice caused them to be delivered out of Egypt. Hold on, I'm going to rock your world. One offering can change your world. One offering can transform your family. They gave one offering. When they saw what that did, They never had a problem giving anymore. And if you ever experience what God will do, you won't have a problem giving either. Amen. Number seven, give in proportion to what you wish to receive. Jesse, if you'll come on up here and and, uh, whoever is helping you, uh, I would like, yeah, thanks so much, guys. This is an important principle. How many formers do we have here today and I'm done? Any? Anybody raise any forms? Nobody, nobody, nobody. Okay. Oh, one, one. Hallelujah. That's the first former I found in two services right there. You know why we don't do forming anymore? 
because they've all been bought up by big corporations. Forming is now a major industry. Thank you, guys. Go ahead and move it out of the way. And so most of us don't know about sowing and that what we sow, it determines what we reap. What's this now? I went to the H-E-B and I got some corn, not the best in the world. This is what they had left. I got 10 ears of corn and I'm closing with this. Okay, 10, 10. Anybody in the building know how many ears of corn grow on a stalk of corn? Anybody? Because you see all these pictures and they're loaded down with five or six ears on every stalk. Commercially, only one ear of corn can be grown and accepted in the market on a stalk of corn. It may produce two or three others, but they're usually of inferior quality, kind of like these I found left over last night at HEB. <laughs> but usually only one ear of corn on a stalk is all that's commercially viable. The rest of it, they grind it up to make silage, food for livestock, or they use it to crush, to make corn oil and a number of other things like that. This represents... God's tithe, 10. Now, you know how many kernels of corn are on one ear of corn? Anybody? You can go to the internet and find out. It's between six to 800, an average of 700 kernels per corn. So I bought some cans of corn, and this is going to represent seed. Okay, here we go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10. This is my offering right here. If each one of these ears of corn have 700 kernels on it, and I bought the larger size, so to act, these, these cans of corn hold more than just for one ear, but I want you to be able to see them well from the audience. An ear of corn is supposed to have about a cup and a half. 700 kernels takes up about, it's about a cup and a half. But you know what happens? I produce my harvest, and I save part of it back. Because this is my seed. You hearing what I'm talking about? Somebody say amen. What happens if I don't save any seed? Listen to what the word of the Lord says. Amen. Psalms 126, 4 through 6. Restore our fortunes, Lord. Is there anybody that would like for God to restore everything the devil's ever taken from you in your life? Your health, your finances, your relationships. Just let's pray that. Lord, restore our fortunes as streams renew the desert. You know what happens when they irrigate a desert? It blossoms like a rose. Amen. And then it says, verse 5, those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. Verse 6, they weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest. These verses contain the secret to restoration. Because you see what verse 5 says is we have to sow in tears. Now, what does that mean? Back before there was an H-E-B, a Kroger, any of those things, you had to raise your own. And so you set... That aside is seed. Or to represent it another way, this is my seed. What is the seed? In the Bible, the tithe is your seed to a future harvest. 
But here's the problem. The average Christian only gives 2.3% of their income to God. That's just roughly two cans and a little bit over. So let's take all of these. And this is all you have left for your harvest. And so the former back in that day, as the winter went on, he's tempted to eat all of this. Eat the seed, his kids are crying. But he's got to say, no, we got to give this. We got to give this. This is our seed right here. And you as a child of God, Sure, you might live better on all 10 ears or 10 cans right now. But what's going to happen when the next harvest rolls around? If all you've given to God is this. God said, if you save your seed and you go forth weeping because your kids are hungry. And you would sure like to be able to give them the seed and cook it. But instead, what you've got to do is you've got to go out there and sow it. Because if you don't sow it, there will not be a harvest. And if you eat part of it, you just ate part of your harvest. You may enjoy it right now. But when harvest season comes, guess what? Amen. This, uh, let me read this from the Amplified. He who goes forth bearing seed and weeping at needing his precious supply of grain for sowing. He needs it. Now let's translate that into where we live. We need the car payment. The house note. So what you're going to do? I'll tell you what most Christians have done. This. That's their seed. This. And they wonder why they don't have a harvest. And for me, for years, I'm not boasting. I've given, for many years, I've given God at least 30% of my income. Now, I'm just telling you, when harvests come in, don't you look at me and get all mad at God because I'm blessed and you're not. You consumed your seed. And if you consume your seed, there won't be a harvest. Or if there is a harvest, it is greatly diminished. Each one of these is equal to 700 new stalks of corn. And each one of those stalks of corn has an ear that has 700 more. And so I'm over here enjoying the benefit of a multiplication that's taking place because I'm giving God the seed. Here, God, take it. Even threw in one for an offering. Amen. And you see me styling and profiling and doing well. And you're getting all mad at God. It don't work. That's because you're eating your seed. Hello, somebody. Stand with me, I'm done. Help me with a pulpit, Jesse, if you would. 
Make a commitment to honor God. Live by his word. Stop being content to look at life out of the window of your car driving down the road. Tell God, elevate my thinking, God. Change my mind. Change the way I think. And let me look at life out of the window of the Tesla. Same earth. Very same earth that you look at every day. That's the one you saw in the background. But it looks a whole lot different from the Tesla than it does from here. 